You're listening to another great podcast in the Stoplight Network. Tech Fan Podcast number 266. I am Tim Robertson. No David Cohen. I told you guys that was going to happen last week. But listen, I'm not going to ramble on a whole lot right here at the beginning. And that's because I did an interview. Uh, just got done recording it. It goes for a little over an hour. So I'm going to keep this like almost non-existent, this opening here. Uh, I do an interview with Glenn Reed. I'm not going to spoil all the things Glenn has done. you got to listen to the whole interview. But let me tell you this. You've used products that Glenn created. Very popular products. So I think this is a great interview. Uh, no ads this week because it's just too long. So we're going to jump right over to my conversation with Glenn Reed. Back here on Tech Fan, and as promised at the top of the show, I do have a special guest. And I know you guys understand I don't do a lot of interviews here on Tech Fan anymore. Uh, actually, we never really did a whole lot here on Tech Fan. All my interviews were on OWC Radio, but I miss doing them. Don't get the chance. But I've got someone this week. His name is Glenn Reed, and I read about him way back in January. And I thought this is this is interesting, and I think it would fit in really good with Tech Fan because, as you guys know from listening to the show, David and I just love talking about tech, and it's not just tech computers or your phone or your television or video games. It's all kinds of tech, and this fascinated me. So, number one, Glenn, welcome to Tech Fan. Thank you. Glad to be here. So you started a company. And it's called Marathon Laundry. Now, I should say Marathon Laundry Machines. Why should anybody listening to this show be, it's a laundry machine, Tim. Why? We all have a laundry machine. Who cares? I put my dirty clothes in it. I put it in the dryer. I take them out. I what, what's so exciting about that? Well, I read an article on Wired to begin with, and then I did some more research what are you guys doing over at, laund at uh, Marathon Laundry Machines that our listeners should get excited about? Well, I'm not clear that anyone will ever get excited about laundry. <laughs> we can start there. And to me, that's part of the point is uh, picking something that's boring and, and almost painful for some people and making it better and making it more modern and bringing it up to date. I, to I was, me, that's something to get excited about. Exactly. And it's what I call a sleepy problem, one that people sort of forget about because they've got other things to think about. But if you bring up laundry with someone, it starts to it starts to become top of mind. They're like, oh, yeah, I hate moving wet clothes from the washer to the dryer. You know, that's the, the experience is pushed below the surface because you don't believe that there's anything that could be done about it, so you just deal with it. And the first thing that we did was realize that you could combine washers and dryers into one box. And it really should have been that way all along. It was a, a historical accident that they evolved separately. Yeah, that is kind of strange that you have to have two different machines. Nowadays, you would think, well, at, at least in the last few things. 20 years, you could have combined the two. You have a, a, a freezer and a refrigerator. That's one thing. Uh, you don't have a dishwasher and a dish dryer, you know. <laughs> right. You, <laughs> and the 
washing machines came first in the really the late 1800s. There were various mechanical ways to, other than just scrubbing your clothes on a rock. And over time, uh, they got better. But more or less, all they do is slosh your clothes and and uh, you hang them out to dry. And electric dryers didn't come around till the 1940s or so. You know, 50 years later partly because of the availability of electricity and reliable form in your home. In fact, there are a lot of places in the world that still don't have dryers. They, the infrastructure isn't really there. It takes a lot of and power. It does, and, and there are safety issues and things that can be in, um, important. So they came about separately, and they just never got put back together. Part of the reason, I think, is uh, the industry itself has no incentive to, to get rid of the dryer. They make a lot of money on dryers. In fact, more money than they do on washers. So They break more often. I do know that. <laughs> Excuse me. And they, there's less technology in them. There's just one squirrel motor that both spins the drum and blows the fan, and they kind of just go on for 45 minutes, and they go off. Washing machines have variable-speed motors and solenoids and pumps and all sorts of interesting things. So, uh, at, But they cost approximately the same. So... All the profit is in the dryer, really. And who's going to buy a washer without a dryer? I mean, especially for a first-time buyer, you 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 have to double the amount of money you're spending to get a washer and a dryer. You do, and it's sort of an assumption that they're sold in pairs. And in fact, the, the idea originally came to me by looking at a magazine ad for a washer and dryer, where I couldn't tell which one was the washer and which one was the dryer. They looked exactly the same. And then it got me thinking, well, why, why are they different machines? They both go around in circles and kind of have buttons on the front of them. And the first prototype we did, we took apart a washing machine and understood how it worked. And they're a lot more interesting than I had imagined. There's a, a spinning drum inside of a fixed drum that holds the water. And so we drilled some holes in the, in the fixed drum, and we put a shop back in one side of it and a, a hair dryer on the other side and managed to, to dry a pair of jeans and thought, oh, this is kind of interesting and kind of went on from there. I'd imagine that was a little loud, though. <laughs> it was. It was yeah, yeah, the shop back's not the quietest thing ever. Nor is the hair dryer. <laughs> yeah, we couldn't ship that exactly. But, you know, my my interest is less technology and more products and uh, sometimes you use technology to make products but if you go into it thinking that that's what you're going to do you end up with a product that has too many features and too much technology sort of everything has a battery and a wi-fi chip in it nowadays and they don't necessarily need them if you start from the other end and look at the problem you're solving and the person the customer you know how could this be better sometimes the answer is technology sometimes the answer is a quieter motor you know so we were looking at it as a product opportunity. So that's really where the engineering work So it started with, let's take these two things that are not exciting products to anybody, except for maybe if you work at Whirlpool or you live in Benton Harbor, Michigan, where they make them. And let's combine them into one. Number one, you're going to save space. I mean, that's the big thing right there. That's a a space saver. Number two, you're going to save time because... How many times do you do a load of laundry and forget to go put it in the dryer? And you go down there and, ah, oh, soaking wet clothes, dog. I still put that in the dryer. All the time. All the time. Everybody does. But if you just stop there, if you just combine those two things in one, 
it's a cool idea, but it doesn't really get my attention. True. And I'm going to guess that uh, you have better things to do than think about your laundry. But if, if, you, if you just stop there, well, let me put it a different way. There's no features you could put into a washing machine that would get your attention. You buy a washing machine when yours breaks or you move or whatever. It's a utilitarian thing. But if you're in the store and you're comparing them and there's 30 on one side of the room that all are kind of the same, and then there's one that combines the operations, it will get your attention at that point yep. because it's, it's different and better. So I think that's really the opportunity. Nobody runs you know, Super Bowl ads for laundry machines. You wait till they show up in the store and then you try and sell them on what you got. So it is unusual. It's the only one in the world that is a vented combination washer dryer. There, there exist ventless machines in Europe and Asia, which is partly why this opportunity exists. Is the ventless machines are terrible. They don't really dry your clothes, and everybody knows that, so they think the idea is just broken. But we found is when you evaporate water out of your clothes, it goes into the air, and the air becomes saturated, and ventless combos, what they do is they condense the water back out of the air into the back of the machine and they pump it out the drain instead of venting. And what that basically means is it's always a rainy day inside your washing machine because <laughs> yeah. it's, um, and the, therefore the evaporation slows down. And those machines take, you know, five hours to dry your clothes. So they're not, they're not efficient at all. They're not acceptable. Nobody likes them. Everyone, all the manufacturers have been discontinuing their models, except where you have no other choice in markets where, you know, you have an apartment with no external wall or whatever. And that is a problem in some European cities that, you know, some of those urban areas, they're, it's really tiny apartments. I mean, you don't really have a choice. That's, that's the, that's the solution. And we don't want to be the weird machine for the apartment in, in Brussels. You know, we want to compete right in the center of the bell curve with Whirlpool and Maytag and actually they're the same thing nowadays but yeah. uh, GE and Electrolux and all those people for the you know the American laundry room and if you look around the industry you see a number of things where sleepy traditional non-interesting problems have been the way we put it is you sprinkle a little bit of Silicon Valley magic dust on them and, and they get a lot better. You know, automobiles. Yeah, Tesla uh, comes to mind immediately. Tesla, exactly. And, you know, there's a one of the engineers from the self-driving car project at Google, maybe even the leader, I've forgotten exactly which, which person it was, just left Google to go make self-driving tractor trailers, which, you know, who gets excited about that, except it's a huge opportunity and maybe a better one than self-driving cars. So I would totally agree with that. Um, you know, so we're, it's sort of an industry that's been waiting for disruption, and that's kind of the way we look at it. Is we're trying to disrupt this, the main part of the industry, not hide in the back corner as a, as a weird combo machine. In fact, we think everybody should buy two of them because the, the number of machines you have is proportional to how much laundry you have to do. And most people can, pe can keep a washer and a dryer busy if you have even two or three people in the family. 
the average number of loads of laundry is six to seven loads a week, which means almost every day somebody's doing laundry. And if you've got, if you watch people go to the laundromat, they use two, three, four machines in parallel because why wouldn't you? And you, the throughput doesn't change between our machine and traditional machines, but if you've only got one drum versus two, you can't you can't do as much in parallel. So, and we price the machine essentially exactly what you would pay for a comparable washing machine so, or dryer of comparable quality, so that you don't have to. So you can premium. get two of these, and it's going to cost you the same price if you got two separate a washer and a dryer exactly from the competition. Right. We've thought of maybe having a you know buy one get one free program thing because we think. <laughs> In fact, I know people that have four washer dryers or two two pairs, I should say. And uh, you know, our yeah. family could definitely use that, to be honest. Exactly. But or, go ahead. So you've combined the washer and the dryer. What else is going to be really cool about these that a, a technology fan would kind of sit up and take notice? <coughs> That's called a leading question. <laughs> fair, fair point. I, uh, so, w- what we decided was, if you're going to make washers and dryers better, you should m- make them as much better as possible and visit all of the issues and problems. And we saw a huge amount of opportunity on, essentially, the user interface and the the experience of doing laundry. And the, fr- the place we started was... Uh, washing machines have, you know, 27 buttons on the front of them. Yeah like old phones had a bunch of buttons on the front of them and what you can do is defined by what printed on the buttons you know if it says gentle cycle then that's what it does so they have to design these machines for five to ten years of everything you might ever want to do with your washing machine is right there on the front of it and honestly most people never use most of those settings they don't know what they are they're sort of in the way so it's a it's a confusing experience, and everybody just uses normal and hopes for the best. So if you wipe all those buttons off and put a touchscreen on, which we did, you can start over and say, well, what's the minimum amount of thinking you want to do about your laundry? Usually it's, can you please do what we did the last time? You know, Right. And so if you just say, well, how do you remember what somebody did the last time? You start getting into you know storage and, and com- compute power and stuff, so we realized you need a real computer in there and it needs to be a modern sort of Internet of Things appliance. And the fact that it's doing laundry is just, uh, that's its task. But really, existing home-based machines, whether it's your microwave or your refrigerator or whatever, until very recently, they had very fixed electronics that did one task and for the lifetime of the machine. And that's obviously changing. Uh, the smart home and you know your car has a lot more flexibility than it used to so we're doing that because why wouldn't you but there's also a lot of uh, deeper opportunity in this particular uh, problem that we're solving we realize that most things in your home just sort of sit there and do what they're supposed to do and if you ask your refrigerator for its status it's going to tell you 39 degrees, same as an hour ago, and you asked, you know, they don't do anything interesting. Right. And laundry isn't interesting either, but the availability or the status of it is a lot more interesting. You interact with it more. It's doing work for you. You want to know if it's done. You want to know if 
I can stop and get my sweater out of there, whatever. And they're somewhat contentious resources. If there are multiple people in the home, you go downstairs with your basket of laundry and you're like, Trat, my kid's stuff is in there and I'm not sure if I'm supposed to put it in the dryer or not. So, And if you get into a, a dorm or a multi-tenant building, that gets even more contentious. So the status and the interaction with it are far more relevant than they are for most of the other appliances or things that you have. So, Or even at the most basic level, I, my, my phone notifies me that the laundry's done and I can get the next load going rather than going down an hour from now to check it. Exactly. And, you know, we think of some slightly subtle improvements on even that idea, which, for example, we can tell if the door has been opened. So if the laundry's done and I send you a text message and you don't come and get it and open the door in the next 20 minutes, maybe we send you another text message or maybe we don't, depending on the preferences that you've set. But, you know, try and use all that information that we have to make the experience better. But that's going to be up to the user. That's, that's things that they can control now. Exactly. And there are forgetful people who want to be reminded. And there are those who are annoyed by uh, alerts and reminders, which is me. I always turn them off and then get mad when I forget something. (laughs) (laughs) I've come to rely on Siri to remind me of a lot of things. And thank goodness, because she's much better at remembering things than I am. (laughs) But, But here's what kind of piqued my interest as well. Looking at the interviews and the things that you've said in the past, uh, mostly coming out of CES, you don't even know all the features that it could have yet. And I found that kind of interesting. Like, okay, he's they're building this technology in here, and they don't even know all the applications yet. Because you could update this two years from now, three years from now, four years from now. So you don't have to release everything all at once, like if you bought a washer and dryer or a refrigerator or what have you. Now, it is what it is. It's not going to change 10 years from now. But with what you guys are doing at Marathon Laundry Machines, you could push out an update, which you know the user could accept or not accept, to give you more functionality. I think that's great. I mean, that's something that, to me, that's more of what the smart home should be. It's not just what it can do today. It's what it could do two years from now. And if you can't update anything, then you're just stuck where you are. But the ability to upgrade it, I think, with more functionality, I think that's kind of the secret sauce. And I think that's what people are going to come to expect. I don't think they expect it right now by any means. But I think they expect it in other aspects of their life. You know, your computer, you expect it to update itself. And sometimes your car nowadays. But you're right. It it can be a refreshing surprise. Like, wow, my machine just got better. And. And in ways that I might not have even anticipated. I mean, and you could even you could even make it so. Here's five things you could add to your machine right now, and you just click a button, it updates, it reboots, and you're good to go. Exactly. And we've realized that we live in an age of data, so we're collecting every possible bit of data that we can. A lot of which is caused by us. You know, we turn on the cold water for 14 seconds and turn it off so we make a note of that and we can calculate how much water has gone into the machine and and, and when or you use cold water on thursdays and you seem to use hot water on sundays we can kind of keep track of that and we want to use the data not for nefarious purposes or you know selling uh your personal information off to the to the cloud but to help make your own experience better sort of 
why doesn't big data seem to benefit me? It seems to benefit everybody else and the advertisers. So, and if you're collecting sh- it anonymously, you could share. You could start collating data that would benefit everybody. Exactly, and and there are things like predicting service. Like, hey, you've used this machine a lot. You know, um, the motor has this many hours on it. You know, maybe you ought to think about calling a a, a technician to give it a once over, make sure it doesn't break or whatever. Or you seem to only use cold water. Maybe you should consider this cold water detergent that you know you can buy on Amazon. And not everybody wants to be sold to, obviously. But if it's helping you and making your life better, and why why wouldn't you? It's, so the, some of these things we haven't thought of yet. But but that's the cool thing with the technology that you're putting into these machines is that you haven't thought about it yet, and that you're leaving it open enough that if someone comes up with a great solution to a problem we don't even realize is a problem yet, you can implement that change and it, you're getting even more value out of something you bought five years ago. Right. And here's an example. We try to think of everything, of course, but there are, will be lots that we either don't think of or don't have time to do in the first release. But the smart grid and energy hasn't quite happened yet. There's a lot of work that the utilities need to do to put smart meters in to figure out when you're using electricity and when it should be cheaper and some areas are further ahead than others but it still hasn't really happened and it's supposed to be a conversation that you know the dryer is supposed to say hey i'm about to use a lot of electricity and it goes and talks to pg&e and says when's a good time for me to go on between 8 p.m and 6 a.m kind of thing and and the grid can say, well, I'm trying to smooth this loadout. How about 2.17 a.m.? So we can't even do that right now if we wanted to because the other, the power companies aren't ready for that conversation. We've been trying to get them, you know, in fact, we're writing software, trying to give it to them to be the other side of that conversation. But they will be ready. And, and when they are, we can update our software and, and get dramatically better rates or power use or whatever because of that flexibility which saves people money over time exactly so i look at your twitter feed and it's at imovie underscore glenn and it says product guy i get that inventor i get that but it also says author entrepreneur actually i get entrepreneur unix geek font nerd <laughs> and two things a, bit, the, a little bit no that's good though you got to be a, proud of your accomplishments but the last two i think that the people listening to this show would perk up a little bit about and creator of iMovie and iPhoto i might have heard of these two apps yeah they're pretty cool apps i i <laughs> am proud of that so let's go back in time uh where did you go to school i went to engineering school at university of wisconsin and got a degree in computer science, almost got a degree in mechanical engineering, but I switched my major at the end of my senior year because I was fascinated by computer science and took a little longer to get out of there. But it's sort of a dual, just a strong engineering background, basically. But I, in those extra couple years I spent there getting my other major, I took a whole bunch of classes, like I took calligraphy and lettering classes and got to learn a lot about fonts, although there weren't fonts at that point other than actual mechanical fonts. And part of that background of computer science and fonts was how I got my first job, which is at Adobe, 
and I was one of the first 25 people at Adobe, so I built font technology that downloaded fonts into printers and stuff. And Kind of important in the day. It was, and it was another sleepy industry that nobody was thinking about that Silicon Valley was sprinkling dust on, and I see that in retrospect. I didn't see it at the time, but it totally changed everything, and, and that's part of where I look for opportunities now is, hey, you know, where's a boring industry? Nobody thought printing was a very sexy industry. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Adobe's collaboration with Apple in the early days of the LaserWriter, I, just from your background, I have to imagine that you had something to do with that as well. Well, not really. I was there to watch it happen, but Steve Jobs had the same experience. He went to Reed College and took a class in calligraphy and got all interested in that stuff. <laughs> and when he saw what they were doing at Xerox Park, he realized that that could be built into the Mac. And uh, the, you know, the Mac, we had screen fonts that you would type and kind of see your Times Roman. And then Adobe's technology was in the printer. But Steve realized that if you can't print it, it's not all that useful to type it in on the screen. So they were the first. Uh, consumer laser printer and he, it was built really because he saw the same thing that I saw is hey this is going to change printing and Adobe was smart enough to also be making a high resolution uh, typesetting machine with the same technology so that you could print something on a laser printer but you could also print it at 600 dpi on a line of type typesetting machine and therefore actually change the publishing industry not just people printing yard sale signs. So I think that it took both of those companies working together, really, to, to launch that revolution. But it was a big one. I would say. <laughs> it's one of those revolutions that it, it seemed to not exist, and then the next day it was everywhere, and it changed everything. It did, and it even changed. You know, there were printers that refused to do digital technology, and a few of them went under and whatever, and people worry about that with new technologies. But what mostly happened is they learned how to do digital printing, and they used the technology, um, you know, for the same way they had been using it. People really still wanted somebody professional to do their typesetting after the first wave of doing it yourself went by. And it, it, it reshaped the industry, but it didn't kill the old industry which I think that point has been proven in a lot of areas, you know. Did TV kill radio, or did it just turn some radio people into TV people? Mm-hmm, yeah. And, but uh, the existing industry has to be willing to accept those changes as well, and there are some industries, I don't know if they are. It's Well, they, they accept it by force. You know, the automotive industry right now is kind of going through that. Yeah, that's uh, true. Tesla was bad enough, and then when Google self-driving cars came along, that's a pretty big shockwave to that industry. Oh, the Prius at Toyota. That's true, yeah. So how did you get from Adobe to Apple? Well, when I I was like the youngest person at Adobe at that time by a lot, and after about five years, I wanted to do something else. And I, the only two things I knew anything about at that point were Unix technology and you know fonts and, and printing and stuff so I looked around and the only two companies that really matched up with that were Sun Microsystems and and Next which was Steve Jobs breakaway company from Apple as you know and I tried to get a job at both of those companies and I 
wrote a letter to Steve Jobs and said, hey, I think you should hire me, and uh, he didn't respond right away. <laughs> but somebody else got a hold of me, and I interviewed over there, and I interviewed his son, and I ended up working at Next. And because they were building, they were using that same Adobe technology to build their workstations that had Display Postscript built in, so it was a good fit for me. And um, it was... In retrospect, a fairly obscure technology that went nowhere for a long time and then suddenly became OS X. Yep. So I did that for two or three years, I guess. I left Next and built a software company that built software for Next computers and built publishing tools and did stuff I knew how to do. But there was no market there. Nobody was buying those computers. And I was more interested in products and people and customers than I was in the technology itself. So I went back and did other things for a number of years. And when when Next bought Apple for negative $400 million, <laughs> they started I've looking I've said that for it. many years, by the way. It's, it's, <laughs> to me, it, it, it was a reverse takeover. It Apple was, gave Next all this money and Next took everything over. Exactly right. And what what happened on the inside of that was all the old Apple people and, and the people around Apple in the industry um, started to realize, well, not immediately, there was some products that came first, but the, as Next Step became kind of pushed onto Macs, all of the things that you had learned about your Mac were just no longer going to be true anymore. So there was a lot of fear of what's this new technology. But there was also not very many people who knew how it worked and what to do. So Steve was running around trying to find all of us old Next programmers, and and there I was um, doing something else. But at the time that that I went to Apple, I find myself sometimes saying went back to Apple, but I only ever worked there <laughs> one time. <laughs> but um, th this was an era when people thought Net computing was going to take off cloud-based computing, and it, it didn't until more recently. Yeah, it took 15 years. It did, but it was a concept, and people were trying to do it, and and I think Steve said, you know, hey, we've got we've to make sure people buy these computers we already make. We can't have anybody undercutting us with a cheap netbook computer, so what do we do? And in a way, he said, well, let's fill up the hard drive, basically, because cloud-based computing, anything that was heavy-duty files it just wouldn't really work over the network, which was much slower in those days. Yeah, most um, people were selling modems. Yeah, it's true. And so he basically hit upon this idea. Well, Apple had invented FireWire but never done anything with it. It was sitting in the back room. They'd never shipped a computer with a FireWire port on it. So he said, let's put a FireWire port on one of our own computers and get Glenn to write movie editing software and <laughs> no pressure hard drive with video that's an excellent plan and so and you know I, at the time apple traditionally up to that point apple traditionally did not bundle any software with the mac they were really adverse to it i mean they own uh, claire's works and they didn't even bundle that with it they didn't even have a bundled email client or a web browser although that was probably ahead of its true. time the only thing you could really find bundled with it was eWorld for a while but that was it well, there was a philosophy back in the days of shrink wrap software that platforms weren't supposed to compete with their own developers. 
And someone Microsoft forgot to tell Microsoft. Well, yeah, Microsoft <laughs> had pretty well shot holes in that whole thing. But Apple was still in that mindset. I think Steve just sort of realized that we can throw that out. And, we can, and, if, and what pro- the problem, too, was software developers felt that they had to write software for Windows always and maybe also cross-platform for Mac. But mm-hmm. nobody wrote any Mac-only applications because there was, it just seemed silly. So everything was the, you know, the, the, the less good adaptation of a Windows app was the best you could do on the Mac. And if, if somebody just wrote a Mac-only app, it could be better. It could take advantage of the technologies, but nobody would do that except Apple in those days. So it was sort of a had-to-do-it kind of position. And nowadays, I think people see that that that's just how the world is and should be. But at that time, it was very unusual. I was writing about Apple at the time. I started in 95, so I saw that transition firsthand and wrote about it quite a bit. And it, it was surprising, but it seemed like it was, well, if, well, of course they would do this. Why wouldn't they do this? This makes total sense. And it, in some ways, is what rescued the platform because then there were things that were actually unique and better on the Mac that you couldn't get on Windows, which had never been true. Photoshop I, always ran on Windows, right. too. You know. Well, I know people because I was the Mac guy that everyone knew in my town. I was the person that a lot of people in the early 2000s that were coming to saying, hey, I want to buy a, a, a Mac. Uh, I, I saw this iMovie software, and i got to have it. I've got a video camera, and I want to start editing all the footage. Um, it, it's a pain on Windows, but look, it's built right into the Mac. So could you help me get a Mac and get it set up and show me what the hell to do? So by the way, thank you for helping me make a lot of money back then. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it it was a revolutionary change that I don't think looking back, most tech people now give it the respect that it deserves because iMovie was one of those key things that really did save Apple. Obviously the iPod and the iMac, but it, it really was. iMovie was the first thing that was exclusive for the Mac that got non-Mac people really, really excited and either considered switching or did switch outright. I agree with you. And and there's a funny thing that happens but when, let's see how I can put this, when things appear to be simple and, and almost feature-free, that's the hardest thing to build from an engineering point of view. If Things that have features all over the place, like Photoshop, it's kind of more straightforward. You sort of just plunk a new menu item in and you're done. So uh, iMovie is the deepest, most gnarly technology I've ever worked on. And, for example, in the in that time frame, Adobe Premiere was sort of best of breed for yep. editing video. And on the Mac at that time, if you were capturing video off of your camera into your computer... The instruction said, you know, turn off your Apple Talk network, quit out of all your other applications, and don't touch anything while we're importing because you might drop some frames on the floor and you don't want that. And so you couldn't even touch the mouse. That was how you stopped it as you clicked the mouse. And it was all because the technology was bad underneath the hood. You, you know, it was sort of um, systems-level programming that was based on the old days when video wasn't very big or you could import the video on one channel and the audio on another. 
but you know, digital video was a fire hose of data, so you literally couldn't catch it on the computer. So the very first thing we did was went and talked to the FireWire team and found out how the low-level FireWire bus worked and went to the Japanese consortium that designed the DV spec and got this giant book of digital video spec. And we wrote our own video import layer. We couldn't use QuickTime because it didn't work. So we had this interrupt-driven, low-level FireWire driver you know, system software that was unbelievably uh, deep technology hiding inside of this free consumer app and it worked great. You could capture video all day long. You could be reading your email and it previewed in high resolution. It was just excellent technology that was no one ever even knew it was in there except we found out over the years like, oh yeah, I use Final Cut, but I use iMovie to import my footage because it works better. <laughs> it, it absolutely did. And, and Newer or younger listeners should understand it wasn't a card that was capturing data on your camera that was just a file that you could just drop onto your Mac. It had to play the video on the camera and the Mac had to capture it. So it was one to one. If you recorded an hour worth of footage, it's going to take an hour to capture that onto your Mac. Yeah, exactly. It's sort of like somebody's pointing the hose at you and you have to catch all of the water and put it in your pool. But you did something with iMovie that I thought was really 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 clever and to me was one of the reasons that it, it exploded in popularity even more so was that you left it a little bit open that you could use plugins with it a friend of mine bruce g made some great transition software for it yeah, i remember i remember bruce yeah, he's a good guy and um, you know so you you made it so other people could make your software even better and more useful yeah that was i i learned that trick at adobe um, I worked at Adobe three different times, actually, and on the second tour of duty, I worked on Illustrator, mm. and we re-architected Illustrator to be almost all plug-in architecture, so that not just third parties, but even the internal development could be done as plugins. That was what, and Illustrator 4 or 5? Illustrator 5, 5.5 5. Yeah. 5 and 6 were the two that I worked on. I, I was an IT manager in a design shop at that time when that when that came out. It it changed a lot of things. It made an okay application so much better. And every everybody, every designer that I worked with wanted to switch from what was it? It was uh, oh, Macromedia made it. What was that application? Uh, freehand. Freehand. Everybody yeah. wanted to switch from freehand to Illustrator. It was like overnight, and in Illustrator, almost overnight, captured the entire packaging industry. Yeah, and part of it was the. Because people could write special plugins that did, mm -hmm. you know, dimension lines or something that you couldn't do with the native app. So, and you could it, send the file digitally directly from Illustrator right to the RIP, which you couldn't do with Dreamweaver at the time. That's true. The, the Adobe built the applications division just to take advantage of its printing technology, really. <laughs> so they did it, it, you know, color separation, all those things right. that apps didn't know how to do. So yeah, the iMovie was a sleeper. It was sort of a uh, technology-driven way to fill up your hard drive disguised as an easy-to-use consumer app. And it was that, too. But the other thing that was kind of interesting, they, they bought um, the guy that created Adobe Premiere, Randy Ubillos, left Adobe to build uh, an app for Macromedia that eventually became Final Cut Pro. They, the Apple bought the product from Macromedia. 
And I came in after that acquisition had already happened. But I think the reason iMovie exists is partly that they realized that Final Cut was too complicated. It was it was a pro app. Yeah, it absolutely was. And so they kind of snuck me in the back door to build iMovie. And I think Randy thought that's what he was doing. So he was a little surprised to see me come in. And <laughs> <laughs> but I remember he didn't like the fact that iMovie allowed you to delete footage like he called it destructive editing and and premiere didn't do that and final cut didn't do that you could hide video with with in and out points but you couldn't actually get rid of it and at this time in history the iMac had i think six gigabyte drives were about the biggest ones you could get yep and that's about 30 minutes of digital video is six gigabytes so you're going to fill up your hard drive exactly as promised but then you can't do anything. You can't get another 30 minutes of video in without external drives and stuff. So you needed to be able to get rid of some of the old video and actually get it off of your hard drive, not just hide it. So we did that in a way by necessity. But we also realized if you don't have professional cinematographers, about a third of all the footage that you've shot with your camera should be deleted. It's, it's <laughs> crap. So Probably um, more than that nowadays. We used, I used to call iMovie a crap removal tool. What, <laughs> what you'd do is you'd import a bunch of video that no one wanted to watch, and you would delete 50, 60, 70% of it, to, and then maybe somebody would want to watch it. And, <laughs> or they'd at least suffer <laughs> through it. Yeah, and, and you don't need so many titles and transitions. You just need to, to remove the crap or the, you know, you forgot to turn the camera off, and you're f filming your foot, and you're yelling at your kids and all that stuff. You've got to get that out of there, so... There was a while that you knew that if something was done in iMovie because it would have the same transitions. You're like, oh, this is an iMovie. <laughs> right. We only put in three. It was like yeah. fade to white, fade to black, and cross dissolves. You don't need any more than that. And if you watch movies, you know, you watch The Godfather, that's all they use. They don't, they don't even use fade to white. They just use straight cuts and... Yeah, George Lucas went... I think George Lucas was the guy who kind of uh, went a little crazy with the, the swipes and the irises and all that stuff in the Star Wars movies. Yeah, but it's kind of a TV thing and, you know, I Love Lucy or something, but right. it, it wasn't really necessary. It's, people use them and they're cool and stuff, but we didn't feel the need to do them and we sort of put in the plug-in architecture partly so that for people who wanted them, go get them from, you know, Bruce G. But... Was the was was the popularity of iMovie surprising to you? Because within two years of release, it was everywhere. There was websites set up for it. There were it was just it was massive. And there you are. You're the guy. No one even knew who you were. You were the guy who wrote it. Yeah. Were you surprised by the popularity of it? Oh, a little bit. It, it was free, so of course it gets into all corners of the world, and people use it. I think. I was glad to see that people just did stuff. You know, it, it removed the barrier of making it a pain in the in the neck to to do video at all. So look, it started a lot of people on their career in editing and directing and filmmaking because exactly what you just said. It removed a barrier, and up until iMovie, if somebody who couldn't afford to go to film school wanted to make movies. Well, what do you do? You got to buy this really expensive hardware, really expensive software, 
and figure out how to and use it. And figure out how to use it. But here's iMovie. You just you play it on the camera. It records on the computer. You delete the stuff you don't want. You got a couple transitions. Uh, it, it was brilliant, and it, it just removed that barrier. And because of that, there's a whole generation of filmmakers out there that you probably don't even know about that are making their money, they're making their living, they're creating their art because you created this tool the way you did. Yeah, that's kind of cool. I don't take any credit for that, I think, to some extent. I think you should take some credit for it. (laughs) I mean, Steve Jobs, as brilliant as he was, he put the right guy on the job. Well, thank you for that. I kind of see it as a, a simultaneous coincidence of iMovie. Was, it was great. It did, it did the job. But it also helped the Mac become successful. It helped. And the, the, the people who were growing up using that stuff had grown up in a video media-based culture, which the previous generation really didn't. So video was the language of you know the 12-year-old at, at that time. So it was a natural thing like hey i'll make a video and, and it seems uh obvious now everybody makes videos with their phones and sure snapchats into people but that wasn't really the case at no. that time in history not at all you had to think of it you had to have a camera you know and so it was a confluence of historical things that all kind of came together at, at the same time so how Without did uh, a- iphoto come about well iphoto so if you imagine sort of being behind the curtain there at Apple and saying, iMovie, that's great. It fills up your hard drive in a hurry. But there are other kinds of media, you know, photos and music notably. So the natural next thing to do was photos and, and audio, and, or music in particular. And I was, you know, there I was, almost the entire applications division, except for the, the Final Cut guy. So... Um, I'd written a, repo- a proposal to do both iPhoto and I- iTunes. They ended up buying iTunes and bringing the guy with it that, that created it. Mm-hmm. It was a good and piece they- of software at the time. Pardon? It was a good piece of software at the time. It was. And, you know, that whole genre of sort of jukebox software, there were a few others. But digital music was all stolen and that app's the, the music store and the, that whole story is a is an amazing story in itself. Mm-hmm. But um, that was one of the pieces, and they they were acquiring companies and technologies. They bought iDVD, they bought the Pro Audio stuff. But I'm a guy that makes apps from scratch, so there wasn't any real photo app that anybody wanted. And, and plus, there I was, so uh, so we started working on iPhoto, and and it was a different kind of a problem. Uh, digital cameras were a lot more prevalent than than video cameras, but still there was a little bit of pain involved. You you know had to get them into your computer, so some of that stuff was similar. And organizing photos, it's still a it's still a pain. But the the same philosophy I brought to that, which was. Nobody wants to do this. Nobody wants to actually tag their photos and make folders and rename things. Some, there's some geeks that do that. But what do you get for free? And what you get for free is what it looks like because it's a photo so you can see it. And you have the date stamp and a few basic things. So we basically said, let's make one large river of photos in chronological order. And you can scroll through them and look at them. And there's your photo organizing. 
which is surprisingly hard. You know, if you have 10, 20, 50,000 photos, <laughs> uh, you, you can't scroll through them. You know, computing technology is not good enough still. There's not enough memory in the world to get all those little thumbnails into memory. So we went back to writing gnarly OS-level driver stuff to make it, you know, Steve said, it's got to scroll like butter. You, you couldn't hiccup and redraw and, and have little spinny cursors. It just had to scroll. So that took three months just to make the reading thumbnails off the disk and displaying them fast enough that you could scroll through that many photos. And it seems silly to bother with that, except if you didn't do that, it would have sucked and, and nobody would have wanted to use it. And once you have that, once you have this river of photos, everything else is sort of gravy. Like, oh, well, now I can see them. And I still, that's the way I use iPhoto is I, I just scroll back and you kind of viscerally see these patterns. Like, oh, all that red, that was when we, you know, went on that Christmas trip and I was wearing the red shirt or whatever. So you don't even have to see them. You just sort of know. Yep. It was a little bit before that. It was after that. Oh, here it is, you know. And I can find a photo in 50,000 roughly than I have now very quickly and it's serendipitous too you see all the other photos around it and you remember oh I remember that day and if they're filed away in a folder you don't necessarily even ever look at them so that's true absolutely photos, enjoying the photos you've already taken was more the the point like just kind of walking down memory lane in a way well I gotta tell you and I'm not gonna ask your opinion on it because I don't want you to throw anyone under the bus here but there are still people upset that iPhoto became Photos, which to this day I don't think is as good as iPhoto was. And iMovie is still iMovie, but the abomination that's called iMovie now is nothing as useful as what you created all those years ago. And, yeah, uh, you I, know, tastes change, but man. I guess what I would say is the original purpose of iMovie was sort of entry into the field you know what's the simplest thing you can do to edit movies so that anybody can do it and what is the minimal feature set and we started there and and it, when you fast forward you know 10 15 years or whatever each time there's a new nine-year-old that is getting into the computer for the first time or 80-year-old that's, you know, bought their first Mac or whatever, they're ready for th exactly that. They want the simplest experience. And maybe you should just never change that app, leave it alone, right? It does th the minimal thing, and it's fine. But when you're the company that makes the stuff and you've got programmers sitting around, they change it because they can and because they want to, not because they should. So you start piling features on to apps because what are we going to do in the next release? And I would have said, leave it alone. It's fine. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. Maybe we should do face recognition. You know, So these things creep in. Well, the marketing team has to advertise something new. Yeah, they're not bad features, but all of a sudden it's a complicated app and it maybe didn't need to be. And, you know, iMovie, you know, I don't even know what they call the new, I guess it's just called iMovie, but yep. it's... It's the baby brother of Final Cut. Like, Randy finally got to throw my copy of iMovie away and make make the one that he envisioned. And it, it's it's a good baby Final Cut. But I think it almost is too complicated and needs 
the original iMovie needs to come back and just have no features, the crap removal tool. And not because there's anything bad or good about the features or, or the current iMovie. It's fine, but it's just, it takes a little learning. It's, it's not quite entry level. And the whole thing had crept up. And the same thing with iPhoto. It got more complicated in features. And the, where's that thing that I like to use? It's hidden in the menu somewhere. And in some ways, I love the new photos because it has no features. It's just <laughs> photos. So it's kind of gone back to the original purpose of, you know, here they are. So how did you transition from Apple into what you're doing now? Because that's kind of a, a, a big change there. I mean... You're, wor you're working on software at Apple. You're creating these great solutions that I know you're, you're going to be modest, but did change the world. It really did. It changed a lot of lives, what you did there at Apple. You transitioned from that, and w what happens now? Well, that's a long story, I suppose, in its own right. But I, I was at Apple about five years, and Apple changed a lot, and... Uh, it went from a secret project in a division that didn't even exist yet. That our, we were working under the senior vice president of service and support of Skunk Works project. And I looked around and realized there were, I don't know, 2,000 people in the apps division and meetings and big company crap everywhere. And I won't say that the fun had gone out of it, but I'm sort of a startup 1.0 kind of a guy. And we were on iMovie and iPhoto 4 and... I said, I got to do something else. and Started becoming I, a little rote? A little, yeah. And the, the opportunities had diminished. We had already changed the world, and we were carrying it out to a few more decimal places, but there wasn't anything obvious and big to do. And you're a creative guy. You, 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 you've got to find the next thing to do. And if it's just the iteration of what you've done before, at least from an outsider's perspective, that might get a little boring after a while. Yeah, I don't get bored easily, but I do like big opportunities and chewing on big, gnarly things. So it's more the lack of, of of problems that have gotten complacent and good. And I want things that are bad and suck a little <laughs> bit and fix them, you know. So uh, so I, I've been thinking about the fact that the, the web had happened, but the Internet itself is not just the web. There's a lot of plumbing underneath of the Internet that's underutilized, and it's uh, better so than it was then. This is 2003, I guess. So I left to start a network technology company. We built uh, group-based instant messaging was our first app, and nobody cared because people used instant messaging, sort of Yahoo Messenger and, and Microsoft Messenger. but The dark days. The dark days, but uh, there was no such thing as social networking or any other way to really collaborate other than instant messaging. So we built that, and we built we morphed it into file sharing and uh, actually blogging and social networking. Like they're all just variations on an underlying theme of client-server computing. So we had this technology that could do all of that stuff, and you know, we built the equivalent of Snapchat and, and Instagram and, and Blogger and everything. But we were too little, and it was difficult to foist that on, on the world. So we labored in obscurity to some degree. Um, but it was fascinating, and I, I 
think that was maybe even more important than the other stuff that I did, except for it didn't go anywhere. But it went, went somewhere. It got sold off to Cisco, who put it in a big room full of other products they acquired and eventually deleted it. <laughs> as long as it's check cleared, though, right? <laughs> exactly. So then after that happened, I kind of looked around and said, okay, I get to reinvent myself because I don't have a job anymore. My company got sold. What do I, what do I want to do? And, and when I looked around, the software industry has become the entertainment industry. It's sort of yep. TV with ads around it. It's free entertainment. It's Facebook and, and stuff. Sorry, my phone is ringing. I have to edit that out with some edit, auto-editing tool. <laughs> nah, so, we leave it in. It's fun. It, it, <laughs> it makes it real for people. Seriously, I, I, it's very rare when I actually edit because it, it, it's the real world. You know, this isn't radio. We don't have those kind of rules. If someone accidentally drops an F-bomb, I might edit that out. But otherwise, nah. Well, I have a, an actual landline, that, and I'm at home right now, so my landline rang, which doesn't happen very often. I'm sure it was a telemarketer. Yeah, that's all I seem to get. I, I <laughs> my wife still insists that we have to have a landline. I just don't see the point anymore. But yeah, we still have it for some reason, and my mom still calls it, so we we keep it. But uh, what was I saying? Oh, so you know, software had become entertainment that you give away for free. It's really not a product almost anymore. It's a I service. It's a it's an experience. So that product guy in me said, I don't, I don't see product opportunities like I used to because no, nobody downloads and buys software. It's sort of going away. So I started to look back at my past of mechanical engineering and say, well, things that you have to make, that's a product, right? You have to manufacture it and stick it in a box or whatever. People will continue to pay for actual stuff. And there are just as many problems in the real world. Or in fact, there are more problems in the real world than there are inside your computer. So the problem space was rich and interesting, and I didn't have the tools I needed. I wasn't actually a mechanical engineer. I just uh, never even played one on TV, as they say. <laughs> but, uh, but I had some sense of it. I fix stuff. I make stuff. So I started looking at that problem space, and I created a company called Inventor Labs where we just looked at lots and lots of mechanical ideas in a way that venture capitalists sort of look at 10 ideas and try and find ones that that fit into the market that can be done, sort of vetting. But instead of creating a startup around each one, we ran them internally. We had about 100 ideas, 10 at a time. We sort of micro, uh, sort of like an incubator, except we were incubating products and not people. And... The washer-dryer that we're building today came out of that, my own incubator. I, we thought of it and tried it and set it aside for a couple of years, actually. When the Internet of Things kind of came around and I realized not only can you combine washers and dryers, you can stick them on the Internet and make them awesome, and, and that's when I realized the, the opportunity was, was bigger. So essentially uh, created a company around one of those ideas and launched it just because it's a great opportunity does but think tank still exist it does kind of it's mostly me but for the first three or four months of uh launching marathon laundry machines we had a couple other projects that uh, one of them is called raindrop box it's a rain water harvesting system that i got my college-age daughter to kind of grab hold of that and launch that as a you know, you can go to raindropbox.com and buy one today. She's 
she got that going to the Kickstarter project. So we've kind of tied up a few of those loose ends and and focused on on the laundry opportunity. But you know, InventorLabs.com is still there with some lame website, and the <laughs> ideas are still there. And and I'll probably grab another one out of the pile when I'm done with this one. Oh, is that a picture of your daughter on the website? It is. So it's. By the way, it looks like a really cool product. I think my wife would be interested in this. It's great. She's got you know, a big barrel that is a pain in the butt to, to capture water in and really do anything with, and it leaks. Yeah. And, you know, people have been collecting rainwater for thousands of years, but in the biggest drought in California history, nobody seems to remember that you can collect rainwater. It's sort of a forgotten thing. So we freshened up rain barrels and made them rectangular and modular and you can click them together and stuff but pretty much they're just big boxes that you store rainwater in no i like the idea i'm looking at it right now and that's that's pretty cool i like that Thanks. so I like it. I, i'm looking at the about us page on um marathon laundry machines and there's only nine of you on this is that the whole company right now that's the sort of the dedicated staff uh we have made judicious use of contractors and outsourcing sure. you know, manufacturing and stuff. But, yeah, still pretty small. So where do you go from here, Glenn? Well, we're going to finish what we started, and that's as, but as far as I can see, you know, uh, focus, focus, focus. It's a cool product. We're almost done with it. We're going to ship it in the next few weeks and uh, see what happens. We're going to get out there and compete with Whirlpool and LG and Samsung is it in the back of your mind that, you know, Whirlpool may come knocking on your door and going, here's $100 million, we're just going to buy you out? Maybe. I'll have that conversation. And, you know, startups exist for one reason, which is to take on risk that big companies are unwilling to take sure. on. We're risk removal vessels, you know. So the purpose of a startup is to try an idea and see if it can be done, see if it's a good idea, see if people want to buy it. And if you prove all those things, you're removing the risk from the idea. And, you know, little companies with nine people shouldn't be making washing machines in the grand scheme of things. We can arrange for that to happen and, and contract it out and whatever, but it's it belongs at Whirlpool or at LG or at Samsung. So uh, we... We're prepared to do it ourselves. We could grow up and become a full-scale uh, appliance company, and we have to go about it that way, and it would be kind of cool, actually. You kind of have to other... plan it that way because you can't guarantee that anybody's going to come knocking on the door. Yeah, you know, the, the worst-case scenario for a technology geek is to s develop something cool and then wait for somebody to license it from you, you know? <laughs> right. It, it has never happened because that's not removing risk. That's just saying, hey, I've got a good idea. If you go out there and you try and sell it to somebody and you prove that you know you've got to you've got to do the hard work. You can't just sit around and, and be smart. So, uh, I like that part. I like the customers. I like the challenges in the market and get out there and get noticed and go to CES. So, I'm having a lot of fun with that. And you know, we have lots of ideas for follow-on products and things, and hopefully, we'll get a chance to do. So, I'm not anxious to get acquired by Whirlpool. But I recognize that if somebody wants to take this idea and run with it that's better equipped to do it, they should. And, you know, I'm not in this for the money. I'm not in this for anything other than getting it done. I love getting stuff done. And I, I think I went on record with one of the, with the Wired interview saying 
my goal really is that I want a Wikipedia page someday, and I wanted to say I'm the guy that got rid of the dryer, and that's kind of my goal. <laughs> <laughs> Last thing I have to ask you about before I, I, I wrap this up here, and by the way, I really do appreciate you spending so much time with me today. I um, appreciate it. I hear you're writing a book. I, I think I read that on a page somewhere. I am, and, and like many people who are writing a book, you hit the pause button entirely too often, so yeah. it's not anywhere near done, and I'm I'm busy, but uh, the book that I allegedly am writing is tentatively called Design Like Steve. It's a sort of a book about, not really about being a fan of Steve Jobs, because the biggest fans of Steve Jobs were people who didn't know him deeply. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but he was a fascinating guy, and he he was a product guy, and he thought about products differently than almost anybody else. And it's an untold story that very few people no, and I felt like I saw that. I've been, I was there. I was one of those guys, and I can tell that story, and I, I want to tell that story. And it's less about him than it is about the process itself. That I took some, you know, I, I won't say I influenced him, but he, I did a little bit, and we worked in closed rooms with a few people in a very collaborative way. And so it was a very, uh, uh, the process itself got better by. Uh, I used to describe it as sort of a cauldron that three or four people would be standing around and you would throw ideas in and, and you would stir the cauldron and nobody quite remembered whose ideas were which. That was not the point. You would sample it with the spoon and, and if it tasted good, you'd chip it and if it didn't, you'd add a few more spices or whatever. So, Well, honestly, I think that's a book that could really be disruptive. I think that that's the kind of story the world kind of needs the the people who are out there wondering you know how do i do this what's what's my steps and yeah and how come these products turned out so well it's it's a it's not what you or think or which ones didn't turn out well and why maybe your book right. can give insight into that as well because if you know this is how it was done and this is why it worked well then obviously something happened over here because that didn't work right so you you, you got to get off your uh, your butt and get it written, man. Well, I I know I'm working on it, sort of. It's not like you got another company to run or something. No, then I look at Elon Musk. He's running three companies. I can do that, right? Boy, that guy is he's he's amazing. He is amazing. He is he's a real life Tony Stark. People kind of ha ha that, but he kind of is a Tony yeah, Stark. Yeah. And thank goodness that we have people like that and like you that are creating things that did not exist or you're disrupting the 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 accepted norm now to bring something new that could really make a big difference to a lot a lot of people and uh i'm appreciative of it. i look i'm really looking forward to going into a store or shopping on amazon or something and seeing one of your laundry machines because it, to me it seems like a no-brainer it, it seems like yeah, of course that's that's the natural evolution, but I don't think the big companies are in any hurry to get there because why should they? You're, you're still going to buy a washer and dryer. So right. I I wish you the very best with uh, Marathon. Thank you very much for iPhoto, and more importantly to me, iMovie. It really changed a lot of people's lives, and I think we live in a a more informed world because of it. Because there's so many people doing so many interesting things now, and they got their start there. So thank you very much for that. Well, thanks for the kind words. I that's way in the rearview mirror for me, and I'm usually looking forward. But I, I appreciate that, and I do feel good about 
having done it. And the only time I sometimes wish that people would remember some of the other things I did, not just the Apple stuff, but that's my task for the future that make sure my Wikipedia page mentions laundry <laughs> machine. <laughs> well, I'm going to put a link in uh, this episode of Tech Fan, which is number 266 for anybody listening. If you want to find links to Marathon Laundry Machines, I'll have a link there. And by the way, it's MarathonLaundryMachines.com. Um, no, it's not. It's MarathonLaundry.com. Right. Uh, we also have Marathon Laundry Machines, but uh, it's too long. So Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think Rainbow... Or I'm sorry, Rain Dropbox sounds very cool. I'll put a link into that, as well as Glenn's Twitter page, which is iMovie underscore Glenn. You say you don't want to be known for just that, but you used iMovie in your Twitter handle. Well, I renamed it after it was Inventor Labs for a long time, and then I was like, what do I name it? And I just, I did, I do realize that I get uh, some attention from having written iMovie, and now that I'm the CEO of a company, I need every bit of PR and attention I can get, so that was a little self-serving of me. But Well, I'll be honest with you. When I first read your story, um, I really wasn't all that interested in the iMovie and the iPhoto stuff. I was interested in the laundry machines. I just think moving forward technology, I love talking to people who are taking what you're doing, taking an, an, an old product, an old category and dusting it off and making it new and making it even better than it was. It's it's disrupting the industry and I just wish more companies, more entrepreneurs would do that. I mean, look, there's a, a, a barrier to entry and you've been fortunate enough to make some money that you could actually do some of these things. But it's people like you that will inspire other people and other changes and we just need that more in the world. We do. I agree with you and that's what gets me out of bed in the morning and I think... Uh, I guess for anybody out there listening, thinking about all this stuff, I would say don't start with technology and work your way backwards to some problem to solve. Start with problems and work your way forward and look at around at what technologies can solve it. And it's amazing how many things suck and should be made better out there. So there's tons of opportunity. Well said. Uh, Glenn, thanks very much for being on TechFan this week. Thank you, Tim. Appreciate it. And as a reminder, this episode of TechFan is sponsored by MacSales.com. Hey, if you've got a Mac and you've got one of the old hard drives in it, you know, the kind that spin, seriously, you've got to get an SSD. It, it's an imperative. It's going to make your machine so much faster. Check them out at www.MacSales.com. And seriously... Thank you to OWC for sponsoring this episode of TechFan.